This is a Baby Brunch podcast. They all laugh at me because I say, does it look like a soft serve ice cream or like the poop emoji? Yay. That's normal. <laughs> they want it to look like, you know, yeah. that's what we're aiming for. Um, so it, for me, far more important question is what does you still look like? Not how often do you go? This podcast is supported by Epimax Baby and Junior. The range of Epimax Baby and Junior gentle all-purpose emollient moisturizers is an all-day, everyday favorite for babies and children. Give your child a good start to every day by nourishing and protecting their skin with Epimax. We've all at some stage Googled our children's poop, whether the color really says something about how our children are doing or whether their gut health is okay or not okay. We are talking about that and a few other issues that involves gastroenterology. And so our expert today is Dr. Leslie Hendricks. I am amazed by the amount of work that you've done with children and your passion for pediatrics and taking care of our children's tummies and intestines. So thank you so much for joining us on Parent and Baby Brunch. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with what you do because on Parent and Baby Brunch, we made it quite clear that your pediatrician and your gynecologist are not the only people that you're going to need for as long as you have children and teenagers. Yes. So, so my job is kind of to support the pediatrician um, where need be. And then, of course, for those really tricky cases, then to, to assist the pediatrician by taking over those cases and kind of unraveling the mysteries and trying to, to treat whatever the patient's symptoms are a little bit better. But I basically deal with all sorts of gut issues. So, you know, we always say um, that, you know, your gut starts from your mouth and it ends at the bum. And all of that is included in, in my specialty. Um, and then you've got your liver and your pancreas, which is included in my specialty. Um, and then, of course, your gut is an immune system organ. Um, it's probably the biggest immune organ that you have. Um, and so we often have a lot of children with immune issues and autoimmune issues that affect the gut as well. So we've got quite a broad range of things that we see. Um, but most commonly, we'll see more allergic type pictures. Um, and then, of course, the very common stuff like chronic constipation, chronic tummy pain issues, colic, reflux. That's kind of my day-to-day -day, um, um, patient profile. There is, it feels like gut health is a buzzword. I mean, it it feels like, um, in Afrikaans, we say moedigril. Like, there's just so much that's out there. And now gut health as well. For instance, the other day, um, one of my babies, um, she, she, we were, we were treating her because the tummy wasn't right. And, um, we, we got a probiotic and then I was like, I wonder if this will work. You know, I'm not sure. And so we've had the conversation on, on parents and baby branch before about gut health, but it was more about our diet and, and so on. But let's get to this. What, what in your experience have you seen is the most common problem amongst children and babies when when you're dealing with parents and, and children? Um, well, I suppose the most common problem very much depends on the age of the child. So with babies, um, our profiles are a little bit different to the older kids. With babies, we often get um, moms and dads who come in with very colicky children, um, possibly allergic children. We see a lot of children with cow's milk protein allergies um, who, who have just ended up here just because they've 
Shame they've tried every formula under the sun and nothing's worked for them. Um, we we see a lot of um, chronic constipation, which is usually due to either prematurity or, or, or um, allergic issues as well. Um, and then, of course, reflux, which happens in all babies. Um, and, and when I say reflux, obviously the reflux that affects the baby negatively. So if it's affecting the growth and development, that's where the gastros kind of get involved there. In the older kids, we tend to see a lot of what we call functional disorders. Um, so IBS type disorders, you know, functional abdominal pain. We see a lot of that in, in our older um, kids. We see a lot of chronic constipation issues because kids generally don't eat very well. Um, you know, if we could leave them to eat what they want, they'd eat carbs 24-7, yeah. um, which is necessarily a good thing. Um, so, so we see a lot of kind of the more functional types of, of pictures in the older kids. And those are usually the two most common. We do see a little bit of reflux and a little bit of allergies but um more common definitely would be the chronic constipation and abdominal pain issues i quickly want to unpack your response to that because this for oh. me is wonderful uh just quickly so what is considered mm -hmm. chronic reflux I think that's a great question. And it's actually probably the question I get asked the most by our new moms and dads when they come and see me for the first time. Um, you know, I always start by saying at the end of the day, it's important to remember that all babies reflux. I mean, it's part and parcel of being a baby because your pipes are built a little bit differently to when you when you're a little bit older. And of course, a lot of the time you're spending on your back or you're spending in mom and dad's arms. Um, so, you know, gravity is not able to do what it does for the rest of us when we're standing all the time. So so reflux is normal for babies and spit up is normal for babies but when you, you are having reflux to the extent where it is causing a lot of pain it's causing um, disturbances in feeding or in sleeping habits and of course a worst case scenario affecting your weight because it means you're just not keeping enough milk in to be able to grow those are the type of refluxes where we get called in to assess so that we can try to to treat them uh, more effectively what is considered const uh, chronic constipation? To give you an example, my youngest, and still to this day, I'll never forget. Uh, it was a case of um, my little prem baby wouldn't make a poo any day. And on Saturday, we were all delighted because we could see that baby is trying really hard with all her might, and she would have a poo once a week, literally. And at the time, the advice that I got was, if that's a rhythm, that's a rhythm. But still, it's almost like I don't want to believe it. When, when <laughs> is, I mean, surely no one goes once a week, right? So when is chronic constipation chronic? Like, should they go every day? Do we, do we give, because I eventually gave her water and she was a small baby because I just thought I need her to go. Going to help her along a bit. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> so um yeah it's another it's another very commonly asked question um chronic constipation for us is really more about the consistency and the volume of the stool versus how frequently you stool because everybody has their own rhythm you know like i i always have a bit of a giggle when i come in when when a kid comes to see me for the first time because you know i obviously to them because they're terrified when they come see me i sell myself as a poo doctor like this i'm Aww. asking you your questions about your poo because I'm a poo doctor I'm trying to make it better um and then we'll be talking a bit about their their poo and you know inevitably I'll say to them well um you know you know is it hard is it soft and they'll be like well it's hard most days and I'll be, well you know how often do you go oh I go normal and I'll be like, Okay, so tell me what your normal is, mm. because everybody's normal is different. And it's so interesting that often the answer is not that normal. Um, so it is 
you know, if you go by the textbook, absolutely. Some people go every day. Some people go every second day. Most people go either every day or every second day, every third day. You do have a few people who go every week. I always say um, that's okay if your stool is soft, if you're not having to strain to get it out, um, if you don't have tummy pain when it's happening, and if you're feeling like you're empty afterwards. Um, but if you're not fulfilling those criteria, then chances are that your gut's a little bit slower than it should be. And often by the time they come to see me, of course, their normal is, oh, I go once every every two weeks or, you know, once every three weeks, which is very not normal. Um, so normal is a very relative term. So for me, I really get stuck on um, the the volume of the stool and and what the stool feels like. Because if a stool is hard or if it's round like a ball or, you know, if it's really, really small, you know, like um, the kids always know if I say, you know, it doesn't look like boktorolikis. They know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about, yeah. you know. Like those are all abnormal stool, um, whereas, you know, it's a small sausage-shaped stool um, or even, you know, they all laugh at me because I say it doesn't look like a soft serve ice cream or like the poop emoji. Yay. That's normal. <laughs> we want it to look like, you know, yeah. that's what we're aiming for. Um, so it, for me, far more important question is what does your stool look like, not how often do you go? So this is quite interesting because the, the poop rainbow is what I really want to discuss with you because... I remember breastfeeding and then it's this beautiful yellow, mustardy, grainy, um, I don't want to say delicious, but you know, when your baby says, <laughs> I know what you mean. when they make their first poo, you get so excited. So, so which color and, and texture says what? So uh, yellow. So yellow is completely normal. Um, I always say, you know, the, the poo colors that we don't worry about would be um, any yellow. Like we refer to the, the poo that you just called, um, that you just spoke about now, we, we, we refer to that as golden yellow stool because we also like that stool. It's like, you know, it's it's pristine, clean, good good quality stool. Um, brown is also completely normal. Um, and green, I know green causes a lot of people concern, but green yeah. is actually completely normal. Green actually just means that for that particular poo, the bile that mixes with our food has moved a little bit faster through the gut than usual. And so it just hasn't had time to integrate into the stool properly and color it properly. So you kind of had this green, this green tinge to it as it comes out. And that's all completely normal. It means everything is still working as it should. Um, for us, the danger signs uh, with, with stooling would be obviously if you're if you've got blood in your stool, that's a massive red flag. Um, and obviously, again, you know, the degree of blood is is very varies quite depending on what the cause is so you know you can have specs like with a cow's milk protein allergy type patient um or full-on clots which obviously is very alarming and that we need to investigate um immediately because that's that could be dangerous um and usually when you've got bright red um spots or, or clots in the in the soil it means that the blood is coming from somewhere quite near to the exit, whether it's around the actual bum area or whether it's further into the rectum or, in, you know, the, the last part of the colon, as opposed to the upper part of, of the gut. Um, and then the other color that really concerns us would be black. Um, so when you have black tarry stool, uh, we call that melena stool smells foul it really smells terrible and that is actually partially digested blood um that's very high in iron that's why it's got that smell and that comes from higher up in the gut so if you've got melanostool, stool you actually are trickling from somewhere either in your stomach or the first part of your small bowel as opposed to lower down with like your bright red blood so there's so many important clues about where the problem is just by looking at the color of the stool and then of course for me very importantly as a gastroenterologist um in a newborn baby, um, we always say if the color is not golden yellow, if it's even slightly 
um, less than what it should be, get it investigated because um, pale stool or white stool is a massive red flag for an obstruction, not in the gut itself, but an obstruction that's from the gallbladder to the gut. And that can cause a massive problem with your liver if you don't intervene immediately. So that's an urgent referral to any gastroenterologist. Any child with pale or white stool, um, they need to be referred urgently. What if it's orangey and, and offensive? You know, my, my, my older one will say, oh, today is not a good poo because it smells and it's orange. Yeah. So look, everyone has, um, I call it rainbow poo or unicorn poo when I'm chatting to the kids in my rooms. Everyone has it once in a while because your poo very much depends on what you've been eating. Um, you know, if you if you have a lot of, you know, purple containing or red containing pigment in your food, like a red velvet cupcake or like beetroot, your poo is going to be colored then you know the following day like it's going to be a lovely purple color or lovely red color um and it's the same like you know with the occasional orange poo or the occasional slightly darker than my usual brown poo those are all normal variations probably based on kind of what's gone in in the last 24 hours um and usually you're exactly right in that you know if the colors usually off it usually means it's a little bit more stinky or you're a little bit more gassy and that's usually because it's something that probably wasn't that healthy to eat. It was like a bit of a treat, you know, like they went to a birthday party and they had cake and they came home with rainbow colored poo the next day um, because that's not part of your normal routine and normal diet. So it's nothing at all to worry about. Usually once you've evacuated that one poo, it's completely fine. If you're at the point where your poo is always that color, then certainly get it looked at because obviously that doesn't depend on what you've been eating. Um, then something else is going on. We need to investigate a little bit further. I realized on the day that she had four peaches <laughs> that I, I was I was about to ask if she'd eaten carrots because I thought maybe it's carrots, but peaches would make sense. <laughs> so I mean, this let, let's get to medication because now I've got my Laxon ready, I've got probiotics, I've got Moleskine. I'm trying to fix the gut, fix the gut. You know, yeah. half the time we don't know what we're doing because we, you know, when you give them five moles of something, you think that you're fixing the gut. When when do we give a probiotic? So at the moment, if you look at the gastro guidelines, which is you know what I follow. Um, for constipation, there isn't really an indication for probiotics. There's been no. Um, absolute evidence that taking a probiotic for your gut in a constipated child or adult makes that bigger difference. So I always say to my parents, you know, taking probiotics for general wellness is one thing. Um, but if you're taking the probiotics because your child is constipated, then my advice is to stop because it's not going to fix the constipation because ultimately constipation is usually multifactorial. It's unfortunately not as simple as, oh, I'm going to give probiotics and everything will settle. Um, interestingly, the reverse of that is if you have acute diarrhea, so if you've got a tummy bug, probiotics have been found to be very beneficial. So any child who has a tummy bug, we immediately advocate that you start some probiotics because it actually shortens the severity of the diarrhea and it shortens the length of the diarrhea. And it's been shown with various studies, one of which was in South Africa, um, that it decreases the need for hospitalization right. in an acute diarrheal event. So we always advocate for probiotics in the case of diarrhea, but really not so much in, in constipation at all. When do we give a laxative? I mean, I remember growing up and it was part of the Sunday routine. Mom <laughs> gave you custard willy, whether you wanted it or not, because <laughs> it was going to clean your cells. 
everyone's yeah. gonna wash you white as snow inside and hopefully <laughs> you'll get manners in the meantime you know they would like they believe that it would take all the worms out and the, and the we, do, do we give do, is is a laxative part of our routine do we do it like we do a vitamin or zinc yeah so i feel like you and i grew up in the same house i know um, <laughs> Our, our day was a Saturday and it was Agarol, which tasted so awful. <laughs> and we'd have to we'd have to stand on the bed and open our mouths while our mother poured it in. It was terrible. <laughs> and it was exactly the same. You're gonna feel so much better, you're gonna be yeah. empty, you're gonna be nice, it's gonna be, you're gonna feel beautiful. It just yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> um, I must say if if you're not constipated, you really don't have to take laxatives regularly. Um, most laxatives these days, I mean, look, the laxatives have changed since we were kids. So, and the types of laxatives that we use have changed since we were kids. The laxatives that we kind of use as the first line stuff on the market now, these are stuff um, meant to support normal stooling habits. So if you have normal stooling, you actually don't need this laxative, you know, to to kind of keep things going because actually things are going pretty pretty well what i do find is a lot of the parents that that i see will often give laxatives because um you know just to to connect with the question you'd asked earlier um their child has missed a day of pooing and then they start to panic a bit because it's like oh they skipped a day and actually it's okay to skip a day every now and then you don't necessarily that's not necessarily a sign that you need to suddenly dose the kid for you know to kind of get them to poo it probably just his gut was moving slower that day. So, and that's fine. Um, laxatives are mainstay treatment for kids with chronic constipation issues. Um, and then we tend to use it for a fair amount of time so that we can support the gut a little bit better and give the gut a chance to kind of bounce back and rally a little bit. Um, and then the time will come where we can then stop that laxative again and see how they do off it. Um, but certainly I wouldn't advocate using it like as a prophylactic, you know, when we were kids. Um, I feel like it's, firstly, they all taste awful. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's such a mission. And then kids end up dreading it and parents end up dreading it and it becomes warfare. And I feel like make life easier for yourself. Just don't do it. If you don't need to do it, just don't do it. You can just get some extra fruit or veg, you know, for supper or dessert or snack or whatever. And that'll do exactly the same job as the laxative because you technically don't really need the laxative. Love that advice. Love it. What about colonic irrigation for children? I, I heard of, this was a friend of mine who, whose mom made a homemade mixture. And as kids, they were scared of the pipe. This was a story. And I was like, why did she do this to you guys as children? It just sounded dangerous. Yeah. So, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. It is dangerous. Um, so, I mean, it's not part of our guidelines at all. Um, we we definitely have space in our guidelines with very certain patients, um, you know, for stuff like fleet enemas. But we definitely wouldn't advocate using um, colonics um, in a home environment, uh, especially because in general, they tend to use them on younger children. And, you know, children can be so erratic in how they respond to medication. Um, and worst case scenario, because most of these um, irrigation solutions have a lot of sodium in them, so they're saline essentially, that can cause profuse diarrhea in a child, um, which of course can cause dehydration and electrolyte abnormalities. So we always caution against it. We actually don't use it at all. Um, and, um, you know, if we give enemas um, as part of our practice here, uh, we often will say to the parents, look, your job at home is to give the laxatives. And if it's got to the point where the laxatives aren't working, 
I'm going to consider an admission and I'll give the fleet myself. So I can give it in a controlled environment and I know exactly what I'm giving and what's going in and I can see what's coming out so that I can protect the entire the entire unit um, a little bit better. Um, yeah, I, I don't really advocate the use of, of irrigation at all. It is the hardest task more than a laxative or custard willy to get your child to take an electrolyte. I have never seen a kid that goes, hey man, I like Smecta, let me, or whatever. <laughs> like I, how do we make, I mean, do, do we need electrolytes after, after we've had severe diarrhea and, and how do we give it to children who just don't like the taste? So, um, there's so many things on the market. Um, I mean, you mentioned Smecta. Uh, the other one, people often use it to septin, and they are by no means bad options. They, I mean, their job is to find the stool. But I often remind patients that, you know, most episodes of diarrhea, they last about five to seven days. So they start tapering out by five days. And if 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 you're fighting with a sick kid to get medication in, it usually just makes a hard, already hard situation just so much harder. Um, if they're taking in fluid, then you you're fine. Um, so we would much rather focus on, you know, like oral rehydration solution or rehydrate, which luckily comes as flavored now. I mean, the grape flavor is actually not too bad tasting. I've had to taste it myself because I give it to my son all the time when he gets his tummy bugs. Um, and of course, the orange flavor, which he doesn't mind either. Um, and the nice thing about those is because they're a little bit more palatable, you can just put them in the juice bottle and the kids will sip on that all day. And then you know that, yes, my son is losing um, you know, stool, he's losing fluid, but at least he's maintaining, he's keeping it in because he's kind of constantly topping up. Um, and in those kids who don't like the taste of those, I mean, there's nothing wrong with adding like, you know, a little bit of juice or a little bit of oros just to flavor it a little bit so that they actually don't get that salty aftertaste because that's often what the issue is, just the saltiness of the, the yeah. solution. Um, and that's more than enough to get them to drink it and then they'll be happy. Um, and, you know, they are far more likely to drink than, than eat anything anyway when they're feeling like that because, you know, drinking drinking solutions just doesn't irritate the stomach as much as eating solid food. So if you can get that into them in a nice palatable way, then you're kind of killing two birds with one stone, which is, which is great. If you had to create the ideal team, who does a gastroenterologist work with? Do you, do you fall in the nutritionist in order to create the perfect team for mom and baby and, and the entire family? Who goes hand in hand with your advice to create the circle of optimum health? Um, oh, I love that question. And I tell you why, because I feel like so many people in our field, whether they be doctors or physios or OTs, so many people work in isolation. Mm. Um, and because of the unit that we have here at Midstream, we are very, very stuck on multidisciplinary interactions and multidisciplinary interventions. So, I mean, in, in my team, on any given day, we have, um, obviously, this is for a patient who's in hospital, but we have an ICU doctor, uh, at least one ICU doctor. We've got at least one gastro on the floor. We have our pediatric surgeon on the floor. Uh, we have our dietitian on the floor who comes to see our patients every day. And then, of course, we have our speech therapist in the background and our occupational and physiotherapist in the background, depending on what the needs of the child are. And I try to follow that same dynamic when I see patients as outpatients. I don't, I don't believe 
Um, I wish there was a magic pill. And I always say, um, you know, if I could find the magic pill for constipation, I'd be a very rich woman. Um, it's never as easy as just giving, you know, Pegicol or Laxon or whatever. Mm. It's, it's always going to be multidisciplinary. These kids are often picky eaters. They, they you know, they, they're not eating their fruits and veggies well. The parents don't know how to get it into them. The dietitian's fantastic with that. They might have sensory issues. And, you know, so certain foods really do cause them distress. You can get them into feeding therapy with a speech therapist. They're afraid to use the toilet because, you know, the potty is an incredibly scary place for a kid who can't poo without having pain. We get the play therapist in, involved. Um, you know, they, they're not struggling with coordination of, of stooling. We get the, the biokineticist or the, the physiotherapist um, involved for, feedback, for biofeedback therapy. There's so many ways that we can solidify the treatment that I'm giving. Um, and those um, peripheral um, supports are actually so much more important than my medication because those peripheral supports is what gets your baby or your child through the long term. My, my medication is just meant to make things easy until the diet can take over and he's able to coordinate his, his movement of his pelvis better and he's able to generate enough pressure to stool properly and he's not afraid of the potty. Then I can take the medication away because now, now we've got softened poo naturally and you can sit down and you can have a poo comfortably because you're working with us. And so those people, I feel in many ways, far more important than I am as the clinician in helping the parents and the, and the patient to settle. So I'm a strong believer in as many people in your team as possible for me, I always use my dietitian and speech therapist. And then, of course, because I see a lot of kids who are on the spectrum, I see a lot of kids with anxiety or with mood disorders, then often there are play therapists and, and speech therapists and, and uh, occupational therapists and physiotherapists that we use as well. At a later stage, I want to ask you how one gets to see a gastroenterologist and, and the process to get there. But what I'm curious about, doctor, is what are the relations between intestinal issues and, and allergies? For instance, uh, I have one of my babies has got a hoarse voice. So immediately we treated her for reflux. But for three years, I've been giving her antihistamine, assuming that it's a post-nasal drip, which it might not be. Is there mm -hmm. any relation between uh, intestinal issues and what's going on here with sinuses and throat and ears and nose absolutely absolutely um so like i mentioned before your gut is your biggest immune organ so every time you get an infection whether it's in the gut or not your gut has to rally your gut has to work extra hard and if you're one of those people who unfortunately are at risk of something like you know a functional problem or ibs or something like that all you need is a little bit of a postnasal drip to actually start triggering your gut to behave um in a negative way um so it, it is it definitely has a massive effect i mean there are certain allergic diseases that are more common uh, with gut problems for example asthma and reflux often go together so we will get a lot of referral from pulmonologists because they feel like the asthma is not really well controlled and they'll wonder well is it because the reflux is not controlled right. so we know you know if, if, if reflux is not controlled it makes your asthma worse if asthma is not controlled it makes your reflux worse so we know that's a very well documented association certainly children who are very allergic and have you know hay fever issues um, post nasal drips and sinusitis issues all of that gun 
goes to sit in their gut. So they often will complain of stuff like being bloated, having tummy pain issues, um, even being constipated. Um, so that area, it all feeds into the gut fairly quickly. I mean, it's got a direct tube that feeds into, into the gut. Um, so there's a huge correlation between the two. And we often will have children who have other system disorders that have had a knock-on effect on the gut, purely because the gut is an immune organ and it's just, it's getting all of these signals from the rest of the body that it's trying to, to interpret and trying to settle. And there's just so much going on. It takes a while for us to figure out how to best settle that situation. How um, important is sterilizing drinking water? I mean, I drink from the tap and my kids drink from the tap and Sometimes when we travel to Cape Town, people are like, no, don't drink the tap water. I just drink the tap water and my kids <laughs> drink the tap water. And, I mean, do, most of us are lucky enough to have running water. But how, how big of an issue is it really? When, when is it safe and when isn't it? Yeah, so I think the most important fact there would be clean water supply, um, which we know... Um, in so many parts of our country, it's just not an option. Yeah. Um, and in those areas, obviously, we always advocate boil your water before you use it, um, just so that if there is anything in there, you've, you've, you've killed the bugs. Yeah. Um, I mean, in my home, it's much the same. We do tap water all the time, but there are definitely kids and adults who are more susceptible to bugs than others. Um, and we, we actually don't always understand why. Um, is our water clean? I don't feel, I mean, I'm fine, so I don't feel like it's, it's that big a, a crisis. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, it is well documented that, unfortunately, when countries go through periods of drought because the dam levels are so low, um, that there are overgrowth of bacteria in those dams. And we typically see an increase in gut-related infections during that time, whether they be bacterial or uh, parasitic. Um, and we see we see quite a few of both. Um, I think probably the best example of recent contamination of water was, you know, the spillage that happened in KZN um, and, you know, beaches being closed. Um, but we still, even now, after so many times, well, so many years, because I think it's been about two years now, um, we will still have patients walk into our rooms and say, we went to, you know, Margate or we went to Durban a month ago and we had a tummy bug there. And since then, my kid has just not been okay. Like she has cramps or she has bloating and um, so there are definitely certain areas of the country where unfortunately you're more susceptible to picking up bugs than others um, and certainly with our current um, drought situation I think that also kind of impacts on clean drinking water um, but the reality is also most people don't have the um, the resources especially now in a recession to be able to buy you know bottled drinking water every day it's expensive mm, it is expensive um, yeah. So I, again, um, my advice is the same. If you if you can boil the water, if you're worried about your tap water, then just put some in a pot and boil it. Uh, and you can always then pour it into you know a container and keep it in the fridge and use that as drinking water. Or of course, if you can, then get a filter fitted to your your tap to see if you can at least remove some of the the possible dangerous particles that might be in there. Okay. I want to talk about feeding quickly. I mean, I. One of my friends just had a baby and she was using these drops that you put in the baby's milk mm -hmm. uh, in order to, I mean, to be honest, I don't really know what they do because I don't <laughs> think it works. Okay, <laughs> and, that's, and that's why I'm judging her hard because I was like, those drops <laughs> are doing nothing for that bottle at this stage. 
do do they work? Do we buy it and put it in the feed and shake the bottle and oh the baby now will digest? There's a number of things on the market. Um for me personally, I must agree with you, I don't really feel it works. It was given to me as well when I had my kid. Um and I didn't feel like it really made that much of a difference. Um and so I stopped it. Um, and, you know, the, the before and after was exactly the same. So <laughs> in my case, it didn't work. Um, and, you know, the idea is it's supposed to be for those babies who are a little bit more lactose intolerant. So it's usually okay. the lactose enzyme that is in there um, to kind of try to break down the lactose in the milk a little bit better. So it's a little bit easy, more easily digested. Right. Um, but. I mean, again, maybe it's because I see so many cow's milk protein allergic kids. I really don't see that many kids with lactose issues. Um, if there's an allergy or an intolerance going on, it's to cow's milk protein, not to lactose. So I feel like if you're using that medication for that reason, then you're using it incorrectly. So, yeah, in my opinion, it doesn't work. Um, I haven't really seen any evidence to say that it works. Um, certainly, it's not part of our guidelines as yet. I know a lot of pediatricians use it. I must be honest, I don't know if many gastroenterologists who use it, um, but I, I stand under correction. Uh, but, yeah, I usually don't advocate it for, for use in, in, in our babies who come through here. Feeding in older children. How do we, do we encourage them to eat their food? Is it really that important? I mean, I remember uh, making lots of pumpkin. Oh, I loved cooking for the baby. And, um, and, and I would say to her, chew, chew, chew. And with no teeth. Oh, it was so nice to watch <laughs> when, when she would chew her food, you know. And do, we, do we encourage them to chew? Is it, is it that important? Or can the tummy not just, you know, break down the whole chicken? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, feeding again, like like anything in pediatrics, I feel like feeding very much is age dependent and development dependent. Um, I do feel like, you know, obviously younger kids, um, we, we very much believe in baby led weaning. So we do encourage while we feed the, you know, pureed butternut and pumpkins and stuff, we do encourage kids to, you know, pick up that piece of apple and and kind of gnaw on it because developmentally that's really important. Can your gut handle it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you if you if you swallow a fairly big chunk, um, obviously the immediate risk is a choking hazard. Um, and you in that way you should be watching, you know, what the size is that you you give your kid to eat. But you know, if it's able to go down the throat, it's definitely not going to cause any issues in the tummy. You know, once it hits the tummy, that acid hits it and then it breaks it down uh, beautifully. Then that's nothing really to worry about. Um, and it's such a wonderful thing, thing for kids to do, like to take some solid food and say, take some more viscous food. And I mean, it's it's so messy, but it's so important for them developmentally. Um, it's lovely to watch them exploring and sniffing wow. and sticking it up their nose and sticking their hands in their mouth and trying to maneuver their hands so that they can get the other end. And that's such an important thing for them developmentally that we, we actually really are strong advocates of that. Um, so we always say, you know, like, yeah, you know, give them like their slice of apple and then in between you can give them their, their pureed food because then, you know, it's going in because let's be honest, most of the solid stuff ends up on the floor. Yeah. Um, but then from a, from a developmental point of view, that the food on the floor has actually just make, it's just, it's firing their brain synapses off in such a good way and such an exciting way for them. And I'm a strong believer in if you get your child to interact with different textures and different smell and different types of food and viscosities at an early age, they are much more likely um, to be less picky when they're older. Mm -hmm. They tend to be more adventurous eaters because they explore so much when they're younger. And they definitely have less sensory issues. 
uh, when oh I'm I've got so many amazing amazing memories and I, I love watching my kids eat still till this mm. day um you know you you offer them a, a small plate of a variety and it's wonderful to see how they how they eat and we're actually so lucky and blessed and if you're listening to this podcast or watching this video uh, I, I just want to also just think of those that don't have. I, I feel mm. very strongly about that at this moment as, we, as we're talking about food and nutrition mm. Um, mm. and drinking water. Doctor, I mean, I could speak to you for ages because the other thing that's on my mind is I'm thinking of children and, and breast milk, milk allergies. And um, let's, let's quickly just give some reassurance to those moms as well. How do you know if your baby is allergic to your milk? Um, or has any form of formula allergy, you know, how do you know to, I mean, this is probably nutrition related, but immediately one wants to, uh, and I use this lightly, overreact, and you want to run to most doctors because you actually don't know what to do. You know, we're so overwhelmed with trying to think how to feed them and what to do. What do we do? Hmm. So, I mean, food allergies in the infant age group is so notoriously difficult. Um, and that's why, I mean, you, you know, you, you say overreact, but I can, I can, as a mom, I understand the panic reaction yeah. because your baby can't communicate with you about why they're feeling the way they are. Um, and you're trying to fix the situation and your child's under the age of a year. And so he doesn't qualify for any of the other medications you'd give to an older child. So you're kind of stuck. Um, so I, I wish I could say that there's a test that we could do for, for like a cow's milk protein allergy, but unfortunately not. Um, you know, it's well documented that 50% of the time the test will be negative and you'll still have an allergy. Um, and then lactose allergies, which is a completely different um, allergy, um, is incredibly rare. You can test for it, but it is incredibly rare. So you're far more likely to have a cow's milk protein allergy than you are to have a lactose allergy. Um, it can be so tricky to tease out who are the kids who are protein allergic. So the most the most obvious way would be, um, I mean, if you read the textbooks, it's the well, happy, smiling child with blood in the store. Mm. Um, that's usually that's the easy one. Like, okay, you probably have a bit of a Carlsberg allergy, um, and we actually usually don't advocate that the parents stop breast or the mom stops breastfeeding. Okay. Not unless you absolutely have to. So in those cases, we'll say to the mom, "Can you go dairy and soy free?" Um, and just remove cow's milk protein completely out of the diet. Give it a couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. Mm. Um, in the more tricky kids will be those babies who are refluxes um, or who have severe colic or who have either diarrhea or constipation because of the cow's milk protein allergy. Um, and those are really, really difficult to tease out because um, even by the time they come see me, um, it's really difficult because Generally, parents, Shem, they've been, they've been to 10 different pediatricians because their kid's crying all night and they can't oh. figure out why. And they've tried 20 different formulas and this hasn't worked and that hasn't worked. Um, and the level of frustration is really, really high. Um, and um, again, my... And I understand the frustration. Usually, usually I get a little bit of a death stare when my response is, well, I think your child might be allergic how about we try to change the milk? <laughs> and then they look at me like, but I just told you I changed it 20 times in like the last six weeks. Um, but there are very particular formulas that we can put babies on if they need a formula who are cow's milk protein allergic. Okay. Uh, and these are formulas that have been broken down to their building blocks. So, you know, they're two different kinds. We call extensively hydrolyzed formulas, um, which is 
you know, some of the proteins are broken down, but not all of them. And then we've got our amino acid-based formulas, where it really is just building blocks of proteins. Um, and those are very easily digested, and they usually settle the babies really quickly. The downside of these formulas, unfortunately, is that they are incredibly expensive. Mm. And babies, because they're already in their building blocks, you know, babies drink it very happily, but then usually a baby would be able to wait four hours for the next feed. And what we find is that those who are on our special formulas get hungry within two hours. Oh, wow. um, and you already have a really expensive formula and now your baby's drinking every two hours. It breaks the bank pretty quickly. Mm. So again, we always cycle back to, you know, if the mom is able to, and we know it's a big ask, but if the mom is able to take dairy and soy out of their diet, um, just short term so we can get the baby a little bit bigger um, and hopefully grow out of that allergy a little bit faster, then that's what we advocate for, really breast all the way. And if that really is a difficulty, we will we will try on the lower grade formulas before we go straight to an amino acid-based formula, um, knowing full well that the price goes up as you escalate mm -hmm. in the type of formula. So we do try to settle them on the cheapest formula, which is the which is the effective for their baby, um, but it is incredibly tricky um, to to be able to to tease out those allergies. I think blood in the stool and eczema are the easy ones. You know, you see that and you're like, oh, there must be an allergy. And and you know, in babies, well, what else are they eating? Just milk. So it must be the milk. But you know, all the other stuff could just that you've got a constipated baby or that you just have a gassy colicky baby or that you've got a refluxer um, and so it takes a little bit of of juggling a few things until we can pin it down completely to oh, your baby is actually cow's milk protein allergic doctor you are a uh, wealth of knowledge and it is just amazing speaking to you with such reassurance and i thank god you're a mother because it just makes us feel so much more reassured and thank you that you are helping so many people. So many people, you are helping so many people. Thank you for, through your studies, for working with um, the, the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital. I visited them a few times and mm -hmm. it is heartbreaking at times to see what our little ones have to go through, but how wonderful that we have experts like you we use your time to help so many children. And I want to thank you on behalf of parents and baby brunch and all of our moms and dads and all of our kids uh, and especially our special needies. We want to thank you for all the time that you are plowing into our lives. Dr. Leslie Hendricks is a pediatric gastroenterologist. This podcast was supported by Epimax Baby and Junior. Epimax Baby and Junior is dermatologist approved, free of artificial colorants and fragrances, and is safe to use from birth. Touch, nourish, love your child's skin with Epimax Baby and Junior.